Welcome to Christ the King. My name is Penny, and uh, if you are a guest or a visitor, if maybe this is your first or second time here, uh, we are glad that you're with us. We're glad that you would come and join us this morning as we uh, come to God's Word. And the portion of His Word that we're going to be looking at is 2 Samuel chapter 7. So if you have a Bible, you can look at 2 Samuel, you can turn to 2 Samuel 7. Uh, this is in our Old Testament. It comes after 1 Samuel, right before, before 1 Kings. And we're looking at 2 Samuel 7 because uh, this is the first Sunday in the season of Advent. So Advent is the season in the church calendar that the church has historically turned to those passages that focus our attention on Jesus' coming, on his incarnation. And so over the last number of years, we've looked during this season at passages like in the Advent narratives, the Gospels, the stories of Jesus' birth. We've looked at Old Testament prophecies that point us to the coming of Jesus and this morning, uh, we begin a series where we, we're going to look at some Old Testament passages. In fact, this is the only one we'll look at, but then some others in the New Testament that speak to the fact that Jesus is the better David. So over 2020, this year, we could say that it's been a year of many things, but for our church, it's been the year of David, right? I mean, we spent most of the year in 1 Samuel, the story of the Davidic uh, kingship coming about. We then took a break in the, psalm, in the summer for, and looked at the Psalms, many of which are written by King David. And just most recently, we just completed a four-week series in the book of Ruth that ends with the genealogy of David. It's preparing us for the coming of David. And so, really, this year has been the year of David. And so, it's fitting that we would end this year by focusing our attention on how David is a pointer, a forerunner to the king to come. You see, Jesus is the one that fulfills the line of David. He is the one in whom Israel had placed their hopes, that they were longing for his coming. Jesus is the better David, the promise of someone better. And that's what we begin with this morning. That's what 2 Samuel 7 is pointing us to. And so if you would follow along, beginning in verse 1. Now when the king, that being David, lived in his house, and the Lord had given well in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, God, Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel." And I've been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies." Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, 
I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. And we ask now that as we come to it, that you would lead us and teach us. Father, there are many things that our hearts can cling to in this world. There are many places and people that we can turn our eyes to for hope, to place our faith in, but we know that they are quicksand, but you are the sure footing. And so we ask that you would help us to place our faith in you, to grow our hope in the Lord Jesus who has come, that you would use this time to do this, so that we would be your people, and you would be our God. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So a week before my family and I moved to Roanoke from St. Louis, uh, Cole and I had the great opportunity of uh, going one more time to a St. Louis Cardinals game. Believe it or not, but the spring before we moved here, we spent a lot of time at Cardinals baseball games. I know that's probably hard for you to believe about me and my family, but that's what we did. We went to as many games as we could that spring, and on this night, this was going to be our last night seeing a game at Bush Stadium before we were to move to Roanoke, and it was a wonderful game. Cole and I were there with a friend of mine and his son. We were 15 rows behind home plate, looking straight down the third baseline. There were amazing seats. We were with good friends, and to make things even better, the Cardinals won. And they didn't just win, but they won in style. They hit four home runs that night, back-to-back home runs twice in a game. Now, if you're not familiar with baseball, back-to-back home runs happen not very often, but back-to-back twice in a game happens almost never. And we were there, and we saw it. It was amazing. We screamed, and we yelled, and we celebrated. It was as if the Cardinals knew that we were about to leave, and they wanted to send us off with a win. (laughs) It was wonderful. I remember Cole and I, as we were leaving the stadium, as we were walking to the metro to get on the train to head back home, I remember thinking, it just can't get any better than this. I mean, what a perfect night. It just can't get any better than this. Y'all have experienced that, haven't you? Those feelings, those senses, right? Maybe it's a graduation, Maybe it's a wedding, maybe it's a birthday, maybe it's the birth of a child, or maybe it's just a time of celebrating with friends or family. And at the end of the occasion, at the end of the night, you look back and you think, it just can't get any better. It was perfect. I wonder if Israel, in the time of 2 Samuel, is starting to wonder that. I wonder if they're starting to wonder, could it get any better than what we're experiencing now? Because the tumultuous reign of King Saul is over. It is no more, and now they have this great king, a king after God's own heart, David, who's going to reign with truth and with wisdom and with beauty. Sure, there's still going to be armies and battles and fights that they have to engage in, but but they have a warrior king who will defend them, who will go to battle for them. And so maybe, just maybe, Israel's starting to wonder, maybe it can't get any better than this. Well, you know, it's... After that night at Bush Stadium, I thought more about that evening. 
And as good as it was, as perfect as it was, it actually wasn't perfect. It could have been a little bit better. Instead of my friend and his son, it could have been my whole family, right? It, just not Cole and I, but, but Kat and the girls as well. We could have been there together. And instead of being in the 15th row, we could have been in the first row where they have all-you-can-eat food and all-you-can-drink drink. And, and we could have been right there close to the action. And our favorite player, Yadier Molina, could have been one of the ones to hit, the, hit a home run. And our favorite pitcher, Adam Wainwright, could have been on the mound. And they could have beat the Cubs. And it would have been perfect. It could have been better. As good as it was, it could have been better. And the same is true of Israel. You see, David was a great king. Of all the kings of Israel, David was the greatest. A man after God's own heart, the defeater of the giant, the protector of the weak. David was the greatest of the Israelite kings. But as great as David was, 2 Samuel 7 promises someone greater. You see, 2 Samuel 7 is the Davidic covenant. So if you've been around the church for any length of time, you've heard that phrase before, covenant. We use it a lot. God is dealing with his people often through covenants. In fact, we see it. And at its most basic level, a covenant is simply a promise. A promise that God makes to his people through a representative. And so we have the Adamic covenant. We have the Noahic, the Abrahamic, the Mosaic, the Davidic, and then the New. And with each of these covenants, God is making a promise. So think about the Noahic covenant. God promised that he would never destroy the earth by flood again. And he gave the sign of the rainbow as a seal of his promise. Or the Abrahamic covenant, God promised that through the line of Abraham, he would bless the nations. God is making promises to his people, and 2 Samuel 7 is no different. God is making a promise that through the line of David, someone better is coming. That God is building a house for David. That's how the passage began, right? David looked and he said, I'm in a house of cedar, but the Lord, the ark of the Lord is just in a tent. So I'm going to build God a house. But what did God say in verse 11? The Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. Now, of course, God's speaking metaphorically here, but he's talking about the dynastic line. He's talking about the fact that God is making a promise that David's line would continue beyond David. And it's that promise that we're going to look at this morning. The promise of something better. But before we look at the details of the promise, it's important for us to look at the promiser. Specifically, the faithfulness of the promiser. The faithfulness of God. So I wonder if you noticed how frequently God referred to himself in this passage. As I was reading it, I wonder if you realized how how much God spoke directly about himself and what he's done and what he's going to do. By my count, there are at least 21 explicit references to God referring to his own actions on behalf of David or on behalf of the people. I'm not going to read all 21, but just a sampling. Verse 8, he says, I took you from the pasture. Verse 9, I will make for you a great name. Verse 10, I will appoint a place. Verse 11, I will give you rest. Verse 12, I will raise up. I, I, I. You see, God is indicating that the promise that he is making rests on on God himself. Now, before we pass this over and you're like, well, duh, of course, Penny. I mean, that makes perfect sense. 
the promise rests on the promiser, we have to remember the fact that a promise is only as good as the one who makes the promise. Right? I mean, think about King Saul. Saul made promises. He promised David a wife, and then he took her away. He promised David peace, and then he pursued after him. He promised that he would stop seeking David's life, and then he sent soldiers after him. Saul was a faithless promiser. And we don't even have to think about Saul to know what it's like to not be dependent, to not look to the promise of one who lies or is deceptive because we've experienced it ourselves, right? People in our families who deceive. People in our places of work who lie. People who are supposed to be our friends but show themselves to be faithless. When these people make promises to us, what we, we look at those promises with suspicion, don't we? And we should, because they've shown themselves to be faithless in the past, and so we don't have faith in their promise for the future. But that's not God. God is faithful to his promise. And we know this because he's been faithful in the past. He invokes the past in verse 8. He says, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. You see, God is reminding David how the kingship came about. It had nothing to do with David and everything to do with God. You see, God didn't look down from heaven upon David, and he didn't think, you know what, I gotta get rid of Saul. This guy has gone astray, and so I'm, oh, there's David. And David's been faithful, and David's a great shepherd, and he has great courage, and he's been obedient to Jesse, his father, and so therefore, David's earned it. David's going to be the next king because he's got the right pedigree, and he's got the right right, uh, skills, and, and he's done everything that he should, and so therefore, David deserves it. That's not what God did. No, David didn't earn his way to the throne. The throne was given to him by the very hand of God. God was faithful. It's God's faithfulness that is on display in the rise of David. And it's not just faithfulness to David, but it's also faithfulness to Israel because Israel needed a king. They needed a better king than Saul. And so in raising up David, God is showing his faithfulness to his people that he will not let them follow after a king who will lead them astray, who will turn them away from the way in which they are to go. God is showing his faithfulness again and again and again. And it goes even beyond that initial call to David because God says, I have been with you wherever you went and I will make you a great name. You see, all that David had and all that the line of David would have came by and comes through the hand of God. And David knew this. David knew this because throughout 1 Samuel, David would express the faithfulness of God. When David stood before the giant, and when he went to battle against the Philistines, and when he escaped from the hand of Saul, who did he give credit to? Not himself, but to the Lord. It was God who had the victory. It was God who delivered him. And now it is God who is making the promise. You see, the promise rests on the faithfulness of the promiser. That he is trustworthy. That he is dependable. 
that he is faithful. And so because of the faithfulness of the promiser, we can now have faith in the promise. A promise that's greater than death. That's what God says in verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. Now, I'm not sure how old David was when the covenant was made with him. But it's not hard to imagine that David maybe is thinking what's going to happen after he's gone. Right? I mean, he's the second king. So he's already seen one king rise and fall away. And so surely he might be starting to think, like, what's going to happen to the kingdom when I'm gone? Maybe he's starting to think about his own legacy, right? I mean, we do this, don't we? I mean, I'm only... Only 42. I can still say that, right? Only 42? I'm only 42? And I think about that. Like, after I'm gone, what will come of my name? Right? We think, after we're gone, what will come of that business that I built? What will come of my children? What will come of our church? What will come of whatever it is that we hold dear? We think about that, don't we? start to think about our legacy. And so maybe, maybe David's starting to wonder, like, what will come of the kingdom? Will it fall apart? Will it fall away? Will those who come after me, will they just lead it and drive it into the ground? But you see, what God's promise tells us is that though David will die, and he certainly will, his line won't die with him. It continues beyond his own life. You see, David will not see the fullness of the kingdom, but God's promise is that David's death is not the end of the kingdom, that the promise is greater than death, but the promise is also greater than sin. You see, God is going to raise up a king, and he's going to establish the throne of his kingdom. And in verse 14, he says, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before the sons of men. Now at this point in redemptive history, so redemptive history is just the phrase that we use to talk about the redemptive works that God does throughout history. At this point in redemptive history, in 2 Samuel, The sinfulness of the king is not hard for us to imagine, right? I mean, we saw it. We've seen it on display with Saul. I mean, he failed time and time again. But sadly, his failures were only the beginning. Because if we were to read beyond 2 Samuel 7, we'd see that even David's going to sin. He's going to commit adultery and murder. And he's going to abuse his power and his authority. And beyond him, in those in his line, in First and Second Kings, we're going to see that they are going to take many wives for themselves, and they'll depend on their own wealth, and they'll look to foreign nations, and they'll turn from God. Their failings will become evident, and their sin will become more and more pronounced. But what God's promise tells us is that the promise of the kingdom, the line of David, is not based on the fidelity of the kings. It's based on God. You see, the kings, they will sin. But God promises that that sinfulness will not be overlooked. He says, I will discipline them with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. 
but. But my steadfast love will not depart from him. My steadfast love will not depart from him. There is so much that we could unpack in that one statement. That God will bring discipline upon those who sin, but his steadfast love will not depart. I mean, it it clearly indicates that just because God disciplines someone doesn't mean that he has forsaken them. That he has turned away from them. That discipline doesn't mean condemnation or judgment. That in fact, if anything, that the discipline of God is a reflection of his love for his people. Right? And we know this, parents, right? We know this. We know that the reason we discipline our children, the reason why we don't allow them to continue in sin, the reason why we point out their sin and call them to repentance and bring discipline upon them is because we love them, right? Kids, I know it's hard to believe. Right? I know it's hard to believe. And I know that discipline isn't easy, right? Because what, who amongst us asks for that? Who amongst us says, you know what? I, I can't wait to be called out for my sin. Right, kids, do you run into your mom's room and come to your dad and go, I have sinned, take my phone away from me, take my friend, you know, do, is that what y'all do? No, you don't. <laughs> and neither do I. Discipline's not desirable, and yet it is a reflection of love. You see, if, if we hated our children, we would let them do whatever they wanted. If God despised his kings, he would let them continue in their sin. But he shows steadfast love to them. He showers them with love and with grace and with mercy. He disciplines his king and his people. And in saying this, what God is declaring is that the Davidic line won't meet the same end as Saul's. No, God won't ignore the sin of his kings. He will not close his eyes to it. He will discipline those who sin against him. And his steadfast love, his unfailing love will remain on them. You see, the power of sin is not stronger than the power of God's promise. God's promise is greater than sin, and it is greater than death, and it's greater than time itself. It's the last thing I want us to see, that God's promise is greater than time. You see how God described the kingdom, how he described the throne? They are forever. Forever. Three times in verses 13 and 16, God speaks of the eternality of the promise. He says, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever. Your throne shall be established forever. 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 You see, the kingdom of God is not like the kingdom of this world. The power and authority of God is not like the power and authority of men. Every nation, every nation will fall. And to everyone who is given power, one day that power will be taken from them. It might be removed in a formal process. It might be removed simply by death. But no power, no authority, no nation, no kingdom of this world is forever. But the kingdom of God is. The kingdom of God is. It is forever. 
It does not end. Length of time and strength of sin and power of death, they are nothing compared to the kingdom of God. And they are nothing compared to God's king. You see, friends, the truth is, is that we don't simply put our faith in a promise. We put our faith in the one to whom the promise points us. You see, the promise that God made to David points us to the king greater than David. Many kings would come after David, and each one of them will succumb to death and fall victim to sin and would be defeated by time, but one. Because roughly about a thousand years after this promise was made to David, the better king came. The better king came. Jesus is the better David. That's what this whole sermon series in Advent is about, how Jesus is the better David. That as great as David was, Jesus is far superior than him. Because Jesus never fell victim to sin. Instead, he took our sin upon himself. And Jesus, though he was crucified, died, and was buried, he rose triumphantly in resurrection power, and he defeated death. And Jesus, upon his ascension into heaven, where does he sit right now? At God's right hand, on the throne of David, and his rule is not for a decade or a century or a millennium. His rule is forever, for all time. You see, the promise that was made to David thousands of years ago has been fulfilled in Christ. So who is your faith in? Who have you put your faith in? Friends, there are many people we could. There are many things that we could look to for hope. There are many people and places that we could place our trust, ourselves included. But don't put your faith in something that will die, or in someone who will fail, or in one who will end. But put your faith in the eternal, the perfect, the living king. See, there is something better. As hard as it would have been to believe that it could get better than David, it does. And the one who is better has come. And he is the one we place our faith. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you have sent your Son, our Lord Jesus. That he is the fulfillment of the promise that you made to David. He is the fulfillment of the promises you have made to all your people. All the promises that you have made find their yea and their amen in Jesus. And we praise you for that. And ask that you would give us faith to follow him. That you would give us trust to walk with him. That you would make us a people of faith. Resting in, depending upon, and trusting in our king who has come. Our Lord Jesus. And we pray in his name and all God's people said together. Amen.